Mark 7, 24. And from there, he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after sprinting, spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he, said, uh, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, I am really excited uh, about our text today. Um, It's a tough one. Um, But before we get into that, let me inform you on where we are headed the next few Weeks. Beginning next Sunday, we will be taking a four-week break from the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a couple months now, uh, but we're going to take a four-week break and do a series called God, God's Great Story. And in this series, we're going to focus on the four parts of the biblical narrative, which are creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. We'll be ending the series on Easter, and then after Easter, uh, we're going to jump back into the Mark into the book of Mark for the second half of the book. So that's where we're headed. I just kind of wanted to inform you so that you can mentally be preparing uh, for that. But as for today, we will be looking at two moments in the life of Jesus. And in our first moment, where we will spend the bulk of our time, we see a really awkward conversation with Jesus. And it can seem not only awkward, but maybe even offensive But what I want to show you is that embedded within this first moment is a reminder of the perfect plan of God. That this story, in a way, is a summary of what God has been unfolding throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And in it, we see the immeasurable sovereignty of God. We see the grace of Jesus. And so I'm really excited about jumping into it. But before we jump into it, let me set the stage because there's some things that we need to be thinking about before we jump into uh, this story. Mark has been making a declaration all throughout the book, and it's Jesus who has been self-proclaiming who he is. All throughout this book, Jesus has been self-identifying. Have you noticed it? He's over and over again, he is reminding people about who he is. In Mark chapter 2, he declared that he's the one who forgives sins. It's also where he told the Pharisees, hey, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, In chapter 4, he did the no small thing of what? Talking to the wind and the waves as if it's a child. Did you ever do that? No, because you're not divine. You can't do that. In chapter 5, he moved a little girl from death to life. 
In chapter 6, he declared that he was the rightful shepherd of Israel. And then we saw a declaration of his, of his identity as he passed by the disciples on the water. Remember that from two weeks ago. Last week, he did the no small thing of declaring that all foods are clean, which would have had massive ramifications on the law. Like moment after moment in this book, and I hope you've noticed it, Jesus is declaring, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am not just a man, but I am divine. And in each moment, Mark is hammering home the reality that the disciples don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand who he is. They don't grasp that Jesus is the king who has come. Uh, when Jesus calms the storm in Mark 4, chapter 4, what does he tell them? Mark 4.40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? A couple weeks ago, Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water, and then we get verse 51 in Mark 6. He got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves, they didn't understand his divinity, and they did not understand his mission. And it's not just the disciples, his family, those in his hometown, the Pharisees and the scribes over and over are opposed to who Jesus is declaring to be. And we have to remember, before we jump into this text, the words of Jesus in chapter 4. He who has ears, let him hear. And at this point, all we have seen, for the most part, is deaf ears and blind eyes. No one can hear and no one can see. Until we get to our story today, until we get to a Gentile woman who has eyes to see and she has ears to hear. So let's jump into it. The woman in our first story, uh, she has everything going against her, okay? She had four things going against her. She's a woman. She had a child with an unclean spirit. She was a Gentile and she was Syrophoenician, okay? And you see the buildup of unfortunate circumstances for her in verse 26. It says, now the woman was a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So if you were to line up a group of people during this time, and you would ask the question, if Jesus could only help one person in this line, who would Jesus help? And it wouldn't matter who you put in that line. No one's picking this girl. No one, right? She has a lot going against her. She's from Tyre. Tyre is the home of Jezebel, the wicked queen of the Old Testament. Tyre fought in the Maccabean Revolt, which was about 200 years before the Gospels. Josephus, revered Jewish historian, notes that Tyre was the notorious, bitterest enemies of the people of Israel, right? The Jewish people and the people of Tyre were extreme enemies. In fact, the first stunning thing in the story is that this Syrophoenician woman even approaches a group of Jewish men. And at first in this story, it seems as though Jesus is embracing the hostility. It would seem as though Jesus is opposed to her, right? That he's against her, that he's joining the culture in this battle, that they are enemies. And, and think about this too. There's a, a couple chapters ago, Mark chapter 5, uh, you had another person kneel at Jesus' feet. Jairus, right? Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet. He was a guy that had everything going for him. He was a man, leader of the synagogue, he's Jewish, and he too asked for Jesus' help with his daughter. And what does Jesus do with Jairus? He willingly goes with him. And here, it looks like Jesus is doing the complete opposite. 
Instead of going with her, he calls her a dog. Why does he do that? You ever wondered that? Why does Jesus call her a dog? This is where we get hung up, right? For many of us, we read past it because it hurts our brain to think about it um, and understand why Jesus would call her a dog. So let's bring some clarity here. Obvious point number one, and this is going to sound harsh, that Jesus calling her a dog is not a term of endearment, okay? It's not like she starts running up to him, pleading with him for help, and he says, hey, what's up, dog? He does, that's not what he's doing, right? I don't, I'm showing my age here, but when I was in junior high, we used to always call each other dog. I don't know if people older than me used to do that when they were younger, but we used to say, hey, what's up, dog? And now that I'm getting older, that was just weird. It's just a strange thing to do. Who let the dogs out was a big song. And so it was just, there's a whole thing about dogs when I was younger, but that's not what's happening here. This is not a term of endearment, and there's no way to get around that. No matter how you spin it, Jesus is assuredly calling her a dog. Maybe a better way to make this land in our time is that it would be like calling someone a rat or a roach. Like, who wants to be, hey, what's up, roach? Like, you ever want to be called a roach? No. That's, it's not a term. And there's no way to put a positive spin on being called a roach, right? Well, what he really meant was, no, you, you were called a roach. So, first thing, let's call a spade a spade. He calls her a dog. And that had implications all throughout Scripture. Dogs were associated with uncleanliness, Exodus 22. A dog was also a name for a worthless person, 2 Samuel 16, Isaiah 56. Jesus, in Matthew 7, 6, says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample your underfoot and turn to attack you. So dogs were on the level with pigs, according to Jesus. Paul in Philippians 3 says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, these are all categories that you don't want to be associated with. Revelation 22, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So let's be clear here. Jesus calls this woman a dog and it's not of a term of endearment. How are we to understand this? Right? First, let's consider what we just studied, where we've been in Mark. Let's first think about this logically. This story comes on the heels of Jesus condemning the leaders of Israel for their dogmatic commitment to the traditions of man. He has stated emphatically that spiritual purity is not determined by external factors. Do you remember this from last week? Rich did a great job. Mark 7, 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So it's not external things that make you unclean, but what matters is your heart. So let's think about this. It would be weird if Jesus, after making a radical declaration about the origin of purity, if he went to this woman, looked at her, and based on her circumstances, said, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for you because the externals of your life have determined that you are not to receive my compassion. You know all that stuff I said about external and internal? Just forget I said it. That wouldn't make any sense, right? So what's Jesus doing with this woman? Well, one option that some will give in an attempt to make sense of this is to look more closely at the word that Jesus uses for dog. If you read commentaries or maybe you listen to podcasts, you may have heard this before. Um, it's kind of known, um, but the Greek word for dog is kuon, K 
K-U-O-N. That word, uh, the word that Jesus uses in this story is the diminutive form. So let's get into some Greek a little bit. I don't do this often. Uh, and some of you love it and some of you are just pay close attention. Don't fall asleep, okay? Um, Jesus uses the diminutive form of the word for dog. So kunarion. One reason for using the diminutive form of a word is to convey the smallness of an object. So it could be that Jesus is actually calling her a puppy. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, cool. Okay. And so it could be that Jesus is actually calling her a pup- puppy. The specific word is only used in this passage and then in the correlating account in Matthew. So maybe, just maybe, Jesus is talking about a household dog instead of like a scavenging dog. And people have tried to use that to soften the blow of Jesus's words. Okay, he's just calling her a puppy. It's no big deal. But let's think about this. In my opinion, that doesn't really change much, does it? Right? He's specifically making a distinction between children and dogs. He's still calling her a dog. I mean, it would be weird if I invited you over to my house. I said, hey, come over to my house for dinner. You came in the house, and then I said, hey, look, by the way, if you don't live in our house, we see you as a dog. We see you as a puppy. We see you as a puppy. So when, when we eat, you have to lay on the ground with the other dogs. Um, you have to eat with them. You can't eat with us. If I said that to you, what would you think that we saw you as? A puppy, a dog, right? So it, you would still see yourself as a dog. I'm actually in the camp that the use of the diminutive form of the word is simply a result of the structure of the text. So because in this story, there are several words that are in the diminutive form, daughter, demon, crumbs, children, all in the diminutive form. So I actually think it's a result of how the story is written, okay? So, done with Greek, where does that leave us with the why? If it's not, if there's no secret hidden meaning in puppy, then what is it? Why does Jesus talk to this woman like this? Well, I think that in this moment, he is using this woman's response to his words as a way of self-identification. It's what we've been seeing all throughout the book of Mark. He's been declaring who he is all throughout this gospel. And in this story, once again, he's going to declare through this woman to everyone around him who he actually is. I mean, do we really think that he's unaware of what this woman believes? Do we really think that he's unaware of what she's going to say. He's the God who forgives sins, who controls the wind and the waves. He knows exactly what's going to happen in this conversation. He knows what she's going to say before she says it. I think he passes the ball. He passes the ball to her, and he waits for her to pass it back. He tells her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So the ball is passed. She picks up the ball and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table get the children's crumbs. And here's what this woman understands that no one to this point in the Gospel of Mark has understood. One, she has understood the redemptive plan of God. She has understood the redemptive plan of God. And she has understood that Jesus is the promised one who is coming. She understands what Paul would later write, much later, what he would write in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. 
She claims Jesus' pointed insult as her own promise. And the promise goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Do you remember it? Genesis 12 too. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will, be, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then what does God tell Abraham? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. She understands what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2. We read it earlier. I want you to go there, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to camp here for a second. I read it for you earlier because I just wanted you to think on it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is going to give a defense of unity for the Jew and the Gentile. And he's declaring that this unity is based on the blood of Christ, that God has taken a group of people that used to be enemies, and he has united them through Christ. And speaking directly to the Gentiles, he says in verse 11, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he says, hey, Gentiles, remember there was a time that you were separated from God. There were external things that separated you from God's people, literal, physical things. The Jewish people could look to the future and they could bank that someone is coming for us. God has promised that someone is coming to deliver us. God has a promise for me. But the belief was that it was just for them, not the Gentile. It wasn't for the Gentile. They were the outsiders. And the misunderstanding was that these promises were only for them. And this girl, this girl looks at him and says, yes, God, but we get the crumbs. We get the crumbs. In other words, she understands what no one else has understood to this point. Jesus, you have not only come for them, but you've come for me as well. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2.13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you were, who were once far off, Syrophoenician woman, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says, hey, far off, Gentiles, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, I said no more Greek. I've actually got two more Greek words. I'm sorry. This one and then one later. I, I forgot about them for a second. I'm sorry. Um, but the word for aliens is the word paraoikos. I see you taking notes. P-A-R-A, para, which means by are outside, and oikos, O-I-K-O-S. It means house. So, by the house, outside the house, both phrases that are words for alien, okay? So, consider this girl. She essentially says, yes, I may be an alien. I may be outside the house, outside the commonwealth of Israel, outside the promises, but you have promised to invite me in. Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What does Jesus say to her in Mark chapter 7? For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 15, he says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. I love that. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
So let's think about this. In this moment, the disciples don't understand who he is, they don't understand his mission. The Pharisees don't understand who he is, and they don't understand his mission. His own family doesn't understand who he is, and they don't understand his mission. But this woman, she has eyes to see. She has ears to hear. She is the first person to understand a parable that Jesus has said. Did you notice that? What, what Jesus tells her, it's a parable. At its core, that's what it is. I mean, listen closely to it. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So he makes three comparisons. Bread, his message. Children, the Jewish people. And dogs, Gentiles. And she understands the parable because she jumps inside the parable, lets it scandalize her. That's what Jesus is doing. Every parable has something about us that it's scandalizing about us, something that it's saying about us that we don't like. So she jumps into the parable, lets it scandalize her, and then she responds to it. That's what we're supposed to do. We're meant to jump into it, let it say what it's meaning to say about us, and then respond to it. Like, let's do an example, okay? Mark chapter 4, we talked about this several weeks ago. Mark chapter 4, let me read it for you and just consider how that would work for you. If you were to listen to the parable, jump inside of it, let it scandalize you, and then respond to it. So Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And then what does he say in Mark 4, 9? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And no one heard it. No one understood it. The disciples come to him later and they're like, Jesus, what were you talking about? And so, he has to, and so then he says in Mark 4, 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? If they would have jumped into the parable, let it scandalize them, then they would have said, okay, Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about us. My heart's like rocky ground, right? I, I'm not producing yielding 30-fold, 60-fold. The sun is scorching. The sun is scorching me. My heart's being choked out by thorns. And then they would have responded, God, let my heart be good soil. Let my heart be good soil. I want to yield fruit. I want good soil, God. Please help me. They would have jumped into the parable, let it scandalize them, and then respond. But they didn't. They were unable to do that. But this woman, she does that. She does that. She accepts the category of dog for a moment and lets it scandalize her. Because in a redemptive historical sense, she's right. That's what she was. She was outside of the commonwealth of Israel. She was a Gentile. She was an outsider. But she takes that and she throws it back at him. But Lord, the promise isn't only for the children of Israel. Does that make sense? It's for all the families of the earth. Let me tell you, what we see in this story, I mean, you could spend weeks on this. You could walk through the redemptive history of Israel and you could show this woman's faith and how she sees, she has eyes to see, she has ears to hear. But here's what I want you to walk away with. What we see in this woman is that she has a humble confidence in who she believes Christ to be. She has a humble 
confidence. And if you think about faith, we talked about this in our Hebrew series a while back. At the root of faith is discontentment for how things are. This is not how things are meant to be. For this woman, she's pleading, God, please help, Lord, please help my daughter. I need help. This is not how things are supposed to be. You say the bread's only for the children of Israel? That's not how things are meant to be. I'm discontent with that because I see who you are. I see who you are, and I know what the promise is. I believe, I have assurance that you can make things right because I have faith in you. Jesus, give me the crumbs because your crumbs are sufficient. So a good question for us to ask is, and do we ever talk to God like that? Do we ever have that same sort of humble confidence when it comes to God? God, I know who you are. And I know who I am. I know that I'm undeserving. And I know that you are more than sufficient. I know that I deserve your wrath. But God, I'm pleading with you. Show me your mercy. I bring nothing to the table. And I'm completely dependent on your mercy. I mean, do we have that kind of faith? Or do we approach God with an arrogant confidence? Confidence without humility. Like she doesn't come to Jesus and say, hey, God, look at who I am. I know that you think this about me, but I'm better than that. And so based on my works, you should heal my daughter. No, she doesn't do that. She calls him Lord. She kneels. She also doesn't approach him with a self-deprecation masked as humility. This is what I'm guilty of most of the time. God, if, if you don't mind, um, if you are able to, if you have the power to, if I know I'm the worst person in the world and I'm just awful, uh, but God, please, if you could. <clears throat> no, she doesn't do that. She comes to him, and she is confident. She begs. In Matthew's account, the disciples tell Jesus to send her, just send her away. Just send her away. And it's at that point, she just dials it up. That's whenever she runs and kneels. She kneels before him. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs. That's confidence. That's confidence in who she believes him to be and what his promise is for her. And we too should have this kind of confidence with God when we pray. I mean, think about it. You have been, you and I, if we have faith in Christ, have been adopted as his son or daughter. We have been adopted. We were once far off, but the blood of Christ has brought us near. He's brought us into the household of God. We were by the house. We were outside the house. And God has called and chosen to bring us in. You have a rightful place to be mad. Do you think that he can't handle your anger? Do you think that God is so small that he can't handle how angry you are or how hurt you are? Have confidence in who he is. Read through the Psalms. Bring him your anger. Bring him your hurt. But also come in humility. But God, I need you. I'm dependent on you. I can do nothing without you. You're the only one who can give me hope. You're the only one who can give me joy. You're the only one who can really give me the desires of my heart to be fully satisfied in you, to plead with him in humble confidence. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, plead based on who he is, not based on who you are. Plead based on his identity, because when we plead based on who we know him to be, his power, his authority, there will be no possibility that we would ever approach him in arrogance or self-deprecation. Like when you really understand who he is, you will never approach him in an arrogant manner. 
there's no possibility for that because it humbles you to see God as he truly is. And you'll never approach him in a self-deprecating manner as well because you will know how much he loves you. And you will know that you've been adopted and you will know that he has chosen you. And so you'll say, I'm here kneeling at the feet of my God and I belong here because he's called me here. He's chosen. So he hears my prayers. Humble confidence. So that's our uh, first moment, and we're almost done. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about our second moment. And I know that there's still maybe questions about that first moment. There's some mystery here. But I think, man, if you, one big principle is he is self-identifying who he is through this woman. And this woman displays humble confidence in her faith. And we should have that same kind of faith. Our second moment, uh, look at verse 32. I'll go through this pretty quick. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. After spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he, said, and, uh, he sighed and said to them, I mean, I, I practice and practice that word. Still can't say it. Um, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So you see the power of Jesus here. He speaks, and whatever he speaks happens. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go into it, but the whole deal with putting his fingers in ears, I mean, if you're curious about what that's about, uh, I, I think that uh, this guy's deaf, he's mute, so he, he can't hear, he can't talk. And so Jesus, you know, he'll, many times he'll show compassion through words, but this guy can't understand him, can't hear him, right? And he can't respond. So the touch here, the ears and all that, it's, I think it's Jesus showing compassion. Like when you pray for someone, like if you're a woman, you put your hand on another woman's hand. Guys, typically we do the shoulder, right? Do we want to be weird? So we just like, all right, I'm praying for you. I'll put my hand on your shoulder. It's, it's an act of compassion. It's an extension. And I think that's what Jesus is doing with all the hands. It's not a ritual. It's not anything special like that. It's just Jesus showing this man compassion. Hey, I care about you. You, you may, the world may see you as unclean, but, but I see you. And so I think it's an act of compassion. Now, what I want to show you uh, is verse 32. Uh, the word for mute, for speech impediment in verse 32, that word is, this is the other Greek word, mogilalos, okay? M-O-G-I-L-A-L-O-S, mogilalos. This word only occurs in this story and then in the parallel account in Matthew 15. And it appears one time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It shows up in Isaiah 35. Six, it says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, the mogilalos, sing for joy. Now, if you back up to Isaiah chapter 34, <laughs> one chapter before chapter 35, um, you'll see a pericope there, a subtitle um, ca called Judgment on the Nations. So Isaiah 34 is God's judgment coming upon the people. Okay, um, let me read the first two verses. It says, draw near, this is Isaiah 34, draw near, O nations, to hear, give attention, O peoples, let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord, look at this language, is enraged, <laughs> enraged against all the nations, <clears throat> and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over to the slaughter. So in chapter 34 in Isaiah, we have a prophecy of the Lord's judgment on the wicked, but then when you get to chapter 35, there's like this complete flip in the mood. It's really strange. And in chapter 35, it's like all of a sudden there's a shift. He says in verse 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. 
The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Now, if you know your ancient geography, <clears throat> you know where that is. As he goes through these locations and cities, he's talking about Mark chapter 7. He's talking about exactly where we find Jesus with this deaf and mute man. And he goes on, he says, The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, the mogilalos, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Then you go down to verse 10. And the the ransom of the Lord shall return. Come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What's the point? As the people are in exile in Isaiah 34, judgment is upon them. Judgment is upon the world. Isaiah is reminding them in chapter 35, there's a new day coming. There's a new day coming. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf stop. The tongue of the mute, the mogilalos, will sing for joy. And what do we have in Mark chapter 7? They were astonished. Verse 37, beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What's Jesus doing in this story? He's self-identifying. He's self-identifying once again. Isaiah told you I would do this. Isaiah told you this would happen. In this place, Isaiah told you this would happen. He told, he, he says, I'm coming to ransom you. That's where we're headed. The deaf will hear, the mute will speak, and then there's a day coming where I will ransom my people. I'm coming for them. Judgment may be here. This is our story. Judgment is here. Wrath is upon us because we're sinner. We have fallen short. We know this. But hope is coming. And hope has come in the name of Jesus. I loved that song that we sang earlier. This is our God. We're actually going to sing it again. You're going to get it twice today uh, here in a few minutes. But this is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. Man, and he, the redemptive plan of God, it's so amazing to see it unfold right in front of us. But we have to understand is that it's still unfolding in our day. And this time between Christ's death and resurrection and Christ's return, he is still unfolding his plan before us. That there will be a day that's coming where there will be no more mute, there will be no more deaf, there will be no more blind. It will be the renewed people of God singing to the king. We will have faith like the Syrophoenician woman. And he will tell us, great is your faith. Well done, my good and faithful servant.